Hello, welcome to the Impact Lounge. I am your host, Stacey Houston, and I am so excited today to have my guest and friend, Rob Shear, join us. Welcome, Rob. Stacey, wow. I, thank you for having me. I mean, this is so full, full circle for you and I. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start there. We probably met, I was trying to think about it. I think it was maybe 2017-ish. Yeah. Um, I had co-founded TEDx, a TEDx event, and you had come in. This was at the height of what we'll get into later, but you had just done this Upworthy video that was quickly becoming, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of like the most viewed videos that they had ever had. Yeah, we uh, still hold that record. We still hold the record. Um, over 150 million views, um, more shares um, than Upworthy has ever had. Um, and so, yeah, we still actually hold that, that, that incredible record from that one video of somebody coming. Um, Stacey, and how that video started, I mean, I don't talk, talk to a lot of people about that, but um, I somebody reached out to me. They'd heard about my daughter, Amaya, who was in the American Girl magazine, um, and they were we were getting backlash because we were two white dads with, you know, four kids of color, and they wanted to do an interview with me. And I wrote it on my calendar, and I forgot. So literally, the doorbell rings, and there's this woman there with a camera and she's like, I'm here for the interview. And I was like, Oh my gosh. So she literally went into my sunroom, popped up a camera and we just had a conversation just like you and I are having. What's amazing about that is, I mean, after that, it's like you have been on today's show, Ellen. I mean, you've been highlighted everywhere you can look CNN hero, right? Um, it's incredible. But the thing that you had forgot, right? Now you have support and uh, assistance to help you manage that calendar because I know that you are super, super busy. Um, it's one of the things we have in common. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that, by the way. We, we definitely have that in common. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that I never thought that I would be where I'm at today. You know, I, I always look and, and, and I actually do this and people kind of are surprised when I tell them this. I look in the mirror and I say, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who would have thought the 12 year old boy walking up the driveway with a trash bag would be sitting on the Ellen show or be in People Magazine? Or who would have thought that the 18 year old boy who graduated from high school living on the streets? I mean, I literally lived on the streets my entire senior year of high school. Who would have thought? And then when I became a banker, I thought that was my job. I was gonna sit behind the desk, make all that money, be a banker, very successful. And who would have thought that 25 years after that, I would give it all up um, to advocate for kids who are in foster care, the forgotten ones? You know, Rob, um, it's obviously it's Foster Care Awareness Month, which is why I'm so happy to kind of kick it off um, talking to you and sharing your story. Um, one of the most powerful stories and moments I heard was kind of from you about your life growing up. We all know that like we have past experience that shape us, right? And I think it's really 
important for people to understand how you grew up and those key things that happened that took you full circle years later when you chose to foster adopt with, with your husband, Reese. And if you don't mind, if you could share a little bit about, the, about that backstory for those that aren't as familiar. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I ever, you know, I'm 54 years old and every single day I get to be reminded of the horrors I lived as a child. And, you know, my mother had been married six times. We lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and DC. Um, I never remember a Christmas tree. I never remember a birthday cake. And I never remember her looking at me and saying, I love you. But what I remember is the monster who lived in that house, the monster who I was supposed to call dad. You know, he would sit in that reclining chair and whatever house we happened to live in at that time. And God knows how many times we moved out in the middle of the night. And I was the youngest of 10 kids. My mother, you know, six, six marriages and 10 kids, you know, half of them living with us at most times, some not living with us, but all of a sudden he would do it. He would yell and he would yell out our name and we would look at each other and we would hope that today would not be the day that he yelled my name. And sure enough, he would. Robert Terry. And I remember I would run with my little legs as so fast as I could to that refrigerator. And I would grab that Pabst Blue Ribbon out and I would run to that reclining chair as the smoke would bellow out of his mouth. And then he would do it. He would take the cherry of the cigarette and put it on my leg and say, you weren't fast enough today. And that was my life. That was my life. Or the nights that he would line us all up and he would actually hold a cold gun to our head and he would click it. And then he would laugh and he would look at my mother and he would say, Francis, I wonder which kid's going to pee on themselves first tonight. That was my family, Stacy. That was everything that I knew. That is what I thought families did. And then I was about six years old. I remember sitting in the front yard of a house and across the street was there, there was a man and a boy in the front yard and they were throwing ball. And I remember even at that young age thinking to myself, you know, I'm never gonna be that boy. I'm never gonna have that dad. But one day, one day, I'm gonna grow up and I'm gonna be that dad. Yeah. Well, little would I know that at the age of 12, my parents would die. Happiest day of my life. You know, who would have thought? Could you just imagine being, you know? Such psychological, emotional, physical abuse and trauma, right? Um, however you process that is, how you process it, but um, no, I could, I could, I could only imagine, Rob. And, and to know that my brothers and sisters, um, how they had been processing it. You know, I at, at, at the age of twelve, I had already had sisters that were teenage pregnancies. I had brothers that were serving time in prison. I had a drug addiction with family members, but me, I ended up going into foster care. You know. 
the saving grace. Yeah. That's what most people think. You know, all of a sudden, this amazing system swoops in and saves a child's life. And that's what happened to me. I was being saved. I went to what I felt was an amazing family. Um, I truly do believe that they loved me. And that's the way they made me feel. Even though there were days that they would sit there and say, oh, these are my biological children. And then this is our foster kid. You know, it was always that label, that yes. label that we always seem to put on each other. Yes. And for me, I just wanted to be better. I wanted someone to look at me and say, I love you. So I would wake up in the morning and do the dishes before anybody would ask. I would, you know, watch their kids anytime they wanted me to. I was a good kid in school. I went to church every Sunday. Um, I would run the vacuum cleaner on a Saturday before my foster parents would ever ask because I just you wanted, wanted love. You, yeah, yeah. Did you want me? Yeah. I wanted you to want me, and then it all changed. The fall of 1984, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I actually made it to my senior year. I couldn't believe that I was actually going to be one of the very first kids in my family to ever graduate from high school. I don't even think my mother was past eighth grade. And wow. knowing that my father, he probably didn't even have a ninth grade education. But for me, I made it a senior. Yeah. Well. I didn't expect this to happen, what happened. In October of 1984, two weeks after my 18th birthday, I walked into my home, my home that I had been living at for years, by the way, a home that I had already started calling my parents, mom and dad. And there standing was my trash bag, my trash bag. I hadn't seen it in so long. I hadn't thought about it in so long. But there it was. I remember saying, what's going on? And my foster father says, can't live here anymore. I said, what? He's like, we're not going to get the check. And since the check's not coming, you can't live here. I remember looking at my mom as the tear went down her eye. And she said, there's nothing I can do. You have to go. So and can you can you explain then, they're talking about Kind of their stipend, right? Their stipend, which yeah. by the way, I didn't even know they got. I didn't even, I didn't even know there was one. By the way, so I that's even more hurtful to find out that they were being paid to take care of you, and once the payment was gone, that's I, it. yeah, the the love was based on a check, a check, and I was shocked. Yeah, and sure enough, I grabbed my trash bag and I walked out the front door. And I became a homeless kid and I was homeless. I was scared. I was not that kind of kid. I didn't yeah. hang out in the smoking areas at school. You know, I was in the drama class and, you know, got good grades. And, you know, I didn't understand what this was going to do to me, but I did. I walked around the streets the first couple of nights sleeping under a bridge. Yeah. And then finally, I went back to school. I hid my trash bag and I walked into school. And I did that every single day. You know, I would actually wait for all the kids to leave the cafeteria and I would go over and I would dig through the trash and gather as much food as I could because I didn't know if I was gonna eat that night. 
And as the weeks turned into months, I was a scrawny, long-haired, dirty kid. And I would hope that when I walked into the school that day, somebody wouldn't push me in a locker. But then I also hoped that a teacher would look at me, acknowledge me. See, as I was sitting in Mrs. Brown's English class and the guidance counselor would pull the kids out, no one ever talked to me. They didn't look at me. See, so it's like you're invisible, you know, like you're going through this traumatic experience. We're thinking that adults are there, right? Adults are there to see us, to support us, to, to, to check in. Yeah. But at this point, they're just, they just weren't there. They weren't. You know why? Because if you looked at me, if you acknowledged me, then you would have to take the first step. And that is to admit you failed me. You failed me. And so May of 1985 rolled around. I had made it. I had made it. I had finally got ready to walk across that stage. I remember they lined us all up in our caps and gowns. And I was so proud. And then I heard people screaming and clapping as they called the kids' names. And then they called my name. Nothing. No clap, no cheer. And as many times as I told this story, mm -hmm. it hit in my stomach yeah. to know that I was truly disposable. I was truly invisible. I was nothing. And I walked off the stage and I didn't even go back to my seat because I nobody cared. I left and went to the back parking lot and I sat on the curb and I cried for the very first time. I cried for my mom and dad. I wanted to feel that cigarette on my legs so bad. I cried for my foster parents because I couldn't figure out why they had given up on me. Yeah. And then I cried for all of you, my community, my community that had failed me. Those were hard times. It's tough, Rob. I mean, I appreciate you being so authentic and sharing the story. I know that um, you have to do it often, right? And it's not, I wouldn't say you have to, that's probably not the right choice of words. Um, you have a duty to, right? Because you're, I mean, you're one of um, somebody I look up to tremendously, right? As an advocate um, for foster youth, and, and those that are um, aging out of foster care um, and experiencing some just incredible odds. Um, for those that don't know those odds, if you could share some of those statistics, um, I think it's helpful to paint the picture of, of what happens um, when people don't adopt the babies, right? And what happens to all of those kids that deserve that forever home but don't, don't inevitably get it. First of all, we must start with understanding that kids come into foster care because of choices other people made. Yes. Let's, let, let's make that clear. Yeah. Kids come into foster care because of choices other people made. 
we can do a better choice as humans of how their path goes. When you're looking at 438,000 children sitting in foster care, and by the way, I do not believe that number. I do not believe that number. And why I do not do I not believe it? Because there has not been a proper statistics done on children in our foster care system throughout our country. I am telling you that we are over the half a million number. Yeah. Okay? Because we've been saying 538,000, 528,000 for years. Yeah. That's not the number. Yeah. But then it even gets worse. Out of all of those children, only 54% graduate from high school only 54 percent if could you imagine in your school district in my school district that only 54 percent of the kids who are in our district graduated from high school do you the really, superintendent would be fired um oh yeah people would be yeah all the all the parents would be down there we, yeah we would be picketing like you have never seen before but we allow it and then only 11% fill out a college application. That's it. Only 11% fill the application out. And then only 3% get a college degree. Wow. That is asinine. Right there, you we should know how much we have failed these children. But then the number gets worse. The older you get, you look at the fact that just to this year alone, we'll see a little over 23,000 kids age out of foster care. 23,000. Out of the 23,000, 70, 70% will be homeless within the first two years. Oh. 70%. And then it even is worse. Look at your prisons. From East Coast to West Coast, we have been able to track that more than 64% of the inmates who are in prison have actually been in foster care. So what have you done? You have graduated them from, from this amazing system to a penitentiary? Yeah. That's all we're doing because we come in and rescue them as children. But then when they become 14, 15 and 16, they're like, they're a burden. Let's just yeah. get them the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? We throw them to the streets. We give them no foundation. We give them no type. You know, when you're going to get a trash bag, what do you think they're going to feel? You know, they're disposable. Yeah. That's what we do with our trash, yeah. okay? There's no dignity in that, right? There's, and yeah. you start labeling that child. Can, I, I never have understood this, why we have to call them foster children. Mm -hmm. They are children who are experiencing foster care, mm -hmm. period. Remember the first thing I said, children. Yeah. And once we start looking at them as what they are, our children, maybe just maybe we could start seeing some difference in that. But I haven't seen that. I have seen the same things happen today that happened to me in the 70s and 80s. I've seen the same thing when it comes to children who are the forgotten kids who nobody is looking at, who's nobody's understanding, which by the way, they are our future, Yeah, our future. And if we do not invest in them today, it just shows me we don't care to invest in our future. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, Rob. Okay. We're going to take um, a quick moment to highlight our partner at sixdegrees.org. Um, Six Degrees Harness is the kindness that connects us 
to make the greatest positive impact. So it's founded in 2007 by Kevin Bacon. Um, Six Degrees uses celebrity to amplify the work of local charities and grassroots organizations that are making a major impact in communities around the U.S. Um, you can support their work, um, like this podcast and many other endeavors, and learn more about that at sixdegrees.org. So thank you. Rob, I mean, it's heavy stuff, right? Like, and uh, we can't always, you know, put rainbows and 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 bow yeah. these types of topics, right? Um, but when when issues are systemic and structural and deep, right? We we talked about you know kids going into foster care primarily out of neglect, right? Which is often poverty. Okay, yeah, but let's let's talk for a quick yeah. minute. Yeah. Let's talk about that because yeah. your definition of neglect mm -hmm. is not my definition. Of yeah. Neglect. And I will tell you that. Yeah. And your definition of, of a woman of color mm -hmm. is treated differently than a definition of neglect for me as a white privileged man. Absolutely. And I'm going to give you a good example of that. We had about a year, maybe two years, a viral um, thing happen where a woman in Ohio who was a mother of five children, in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. in the morning, she called 911. And she called 911 because she had ran out of formula. She couldn't feed her brand new baby. Her milk ducts had dried up. She didn't have any money and she didn't have any formula. It was on every single TV station, every single podcast. And it was about how the 911 dispatcher, the 911 dispatcher called a police officer. The police officer went to the local store and bought formula and took it to that woman and gave her that formula. Now, I will say, as a community, that's what we should have done. But I will tell you right now, that woman who was white, that's why that happened. Because you know as well as I do, if that happened in Harlem, if that happened in Compton, the south sides of Chicago, northeast DC, and a police officer arrived with a woman with five kids and you're not able to feed them, and she is a woman of color, her children would have been taken from neglect. Simple as that. So we have got to start looking at this differently. First of all, we've got to start supporting the family before a child ever comes to foster care, yeah. okay? We have to do that. We know foster care has to exist. There's just no doubt. Yeah. I have children that arrived in my home that were severely abused, okay? Physically abused. Those children have to have a place to go. Absolutely. I also would say that we have more children arrive because of that neglect word than we do anything else. So I don't understand if we have the money to pay a foster parent to take care and save this child, we can't invest that money in the parent and giving them a, a living wage and, mm -hmm. and giving, teaching them. And, and maybe let's, how about if we start doing something different that we never did before? Mm -hmm. How about if we take a foster parent and we take the foster parent and move the foster parent into the family? Mm -hmm. Move them into the family. Help them, the mother, the the or the father, you know, stabilize that home. Mm -hmm. Get them some skills. You know, you have to realize that it's a cycle. You know, 
Most of these kids who end up in foster care, they come from parents who were in foster care, who were not taught the proper parenting skills. And how could they have, right? Because they weren't in these environments in the first place. Right. So it's, it really can be generational. And you make so many great points um, about, you know, this is like the stipend. It's like we, we pay it to the foster care family. Why not reimagine how that can be used to kind of support? Um, and, and we're not saying when, when there's physical and that type of abuse, but we're talking about when they can't keep their lights on and yeah. they can't give their child formula, right? Like, why not help them? Um, empower them, right? So that they can continue. Uh, because we all know that it's best, right? If the child can remain with the family for the child, yes. um, you know, the, the family unit. Um, and I know with foster care, you know, that the ideal is that, you know, reunification can happen. And after reunification is no longer a possibility for various reasons that are, you know, dictated on a state by state basis, um, then the, then adoption is allowed, right? Uh, so, listen, so, so, so look at that really how that works, because that, that is another, that is another shattered system, how that works. Mm -hmm. First of all, you, 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 you remove a child from a, the only family they know. Okay. You give a birth parent a one hour supervised visit a week after mind you, this child's been with this parent all this time. Yeah. And then we do these reunification goals and we determine how long that system is. How long does a child flounder in a system? How many homes does a child have to go to? The damage that we do to these children, you know, and then we start beating up on the birth parent, you know, and, 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 and I've said this for the longest time. When a child enters foster care, the very first thing that should happen is the foster parent the birth parent, the social worker, the CASA worker, the guardian of litem should come to a table and sit down. And they say, okay, what's the best thing we're gonna do for Susie and Johnny? Okay, we're all here together as a family. Why? Because we care about this child. So what are we going to do? The birth mother is gonna say, I want my child back. Fine, as the foster parent, I want you to have your child back. So this is what I'm going to do. You know, my front door is open. Come and visit your child whenever you want. Mm -hmm. Take those anger management classes. Let me drive you to those parenting classes. Mm -hmm. Let me sit and have coffee with you and mentor you with the way that you have never been mentored. We've never tried that. Yes. You know, we've never tried that. Instead, what happens, child comes in, you got the, you got the birth parents on one island, you got the foster parents on another island, you got the CASA worker on another island, you got the guardian of litem on another island, and then the kids sitting by themselves. And they're torn by all these people. And then a year goes by, a year and a half goes by, kids still sitting in this, this swirl of a system. And then the next thing you know, we say to the kid, okay, you can go back to your mom now. Well, I haven't been with my mom in a year. I've only seen her for an hour a week. And now all of a sudden I have to go back to her. And by the way, when I do that, I don't get to see any of you anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you want to talk about bonding issues, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that, that you take a child, put them in foster care, 
keep them away from their bio family. And then all of a sudden they stay in the system, the average 18 months to three years. And then they go back to a birth family that they haven't been with, but then they can't see their, their, and by the way, people don't realize this. Not only can they not see their foster parents, they don't get to see their CASA worker either. Can you talk a little bit, um, because I'm really new to CASA workers, and I think that it's an incredible um, support system, but that idea that you have this person, you could share a little bit about what CASA is, um, and that they can't actually continue that relationship, because I do find that troubling. You know, it's it actually stands for court-appointed court special advocates, and they are amazing. And we love our CASA workers throughout the country. Comfort Cases works really, really close with CASA workers. Um, they are there to, to support the youth um, that's in the system, but also to support the family bond within itself. Yeah. This is a volunteer position, so let's understand that. Um, and their job is just to let that, you know, be that mentor for that child as they're going through this crazy time. But the problem is, is that CASA has made a decision, and I think it's been made more through the courts than CASA, because I think CASA would change it if they could. But they have a policy that when the child is reunified with the birth parents, they're no longer in the picture. So they no longer get. So a CASA worker normally visits with the child at least once a month, you know, prior to COVID, um, talk to the child every week. And then all of a sudden, as soon as the child goes back to the birth parents, the CASA worker is cut off. Again, damage, 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 damage. It's just like, we just keep, we keep traumatizing these kids, you know, over and over and over and over again. And then we wonder, then with this is thing that blows my mind. Then we wonder why these kids suffer from reactive attachment disorder. Why do these kids, and this this statistic should have your listeners up in arms, that children in foster care actually suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder twice the rate as our combat veterans coming back from the front line. Twice the rate. You know, they have defiant disorder. You know, why? Because look what we've put them through. You know, look what we have put them through. We, we, we put them in a system that we know doesn't work. We do not have the support that they need. We don't have enough families that are decent enough. And come on, by the way, there's a lot of great foster parents out there. And thank yes, you for yeah. amazing foster parents. They are great, great foster parents. But you know what? We're not going to blow rainbows up anybody's but right now, Stacy, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of bad foster parents, yeah. a lot of bad foster parents. And the thing that I don't understand is that, for instance, in the state of Maryland, highest paid state next to Arizona when it comes to stipends. OK, highest paid next. to. Explain to me why a portion of that money doesn't go into an interest bearing savings account for that child when they age out. Why are we not financially setting that child up? And let's just talk about what we all just saw in the news just two weeks ago when we found out, which by the way, I've known this, I have spoke about this publicly for the last two years. The state of Maryland is the only state in this country that takes a part of social security 
and puts it in an interest-bearing savings account. And I want to repeat that. They, they just do a part. So they're not, they're not all that great either. So what happens is when my parents died or when mm-hmm. a child who comes into foster care parent dies, this, the, count, the federal government pays Social Security to that child until they're 18. Mm-hmm. Do you realize that if you're a child in foster care, the state takes that money? It's theirs. They keep it. Never get it. They never get it. The thousands and thousands and thousands. We're talking millions and millions of dollars the states have raked in on these kids in foster care. Yeah. Taking that money and putting in an interest-bearing savings account for when they age out. Again, it's part of the shattered Mm -hmm. system. So one of the things, Rob, that um, I appreciate about you and that you, um, it's how you speak about it. You often refer to the children as our children, our kids, our failure, right? And so for our listeners, I want them to understand how, like what you mean by that, right? Um, the ownership that you believe that we have, have as a community to take care of these kids that are in the system. Yeah. You know, first of all, I, I say this quite often and, and and I love Six Degrees. I love what Kevin has built because Kevin truly does the definition of community. And, you know, people must understand is that your community is not your zip code. Um, your community is our human race. And what affects people in my little town of Darnstown, Maryland, affects people in Austin, Texas. And we have to understand that. But what we also have to understand is that children who come into foster care because of choices other people made, they do not belong to me, they do not belong to you, but they belong to us, to us. Why do I say that? Because they're our future. Why do I say that? Because our tax dollars are taking care of them. We should have a say on what's going on. And instead, we're not. We're not. The only thing that we're doing is we're building more prisons. That's ridiculous. We should be building more opportunities for these kids. More opportunities. Support services. I mean, there's just so much we could be doing to help. So much. And by the way, don't wait till they're 16. By the time they're 16, my friend, I hate to tell you this, they are pissed off at you. They are mad. They are mad that the man has held them down for all these years. They are angry. And by the way, they have every right. Yeah. They have every right. We have failed them from the moment they walked into the system. And then at the age of 16, we're going to go, oh, let's figure out how we're going to do this. Let me tell you, my oldest son, and we have five kids now. So for those of you who read my book, A Forever Family, um, the only thing I regret is that I had not had my fifth son, Alex, arrive. But my fifth son, Alex, arrived to us, and he arrived at the age of 18, okay? A kid from the system who was getting ready to age out of the system. Let me tell you. It was absolutely horrifying to me what I have seen happen for kids who are older. This whole getting ready, you know, for them getting ready to age out. Um, I'm very lucky. My son, my son, Alex, he's now 20 years old. He has been with us for almost two years. He's a freshman in college, but he has two dads who love him. 
and that support him and that gives him the net and gives him the foundation. And, and I remember a social worker saying to us just recently, there's so many opportunities for, for Alex as long as he stays in the system. And I said to the, the social worker, I said, how do you think a boy like Alex feels? He's been in the system on and off most of his life. You all have told him what to do, where to go, where to live. You've done everything when it comes to that. Don't you think he just wants to get away from all of you? That there is not a dollar figure or college education. He's just sick of you. I was like, every single month, every twice a month, you come in and you're knocking on his door. What are you doing? Who are you? What are you, what are you been with? I was like, these kids are done. We have to give them an incentive to do and take advantage of the opportunities. Yeah. By the way, in your state and my state, tuition is paid for college. You know, but That's fantastic. It's only yeah. until they're twenty six. Yeah, and we've talked. I've talked about this. The twenty six, like. Um, I mean, like, what I mean, it's you have all these kids these these days that um, are taking gap years to find themselves and like that. And I'm not saying that, like, if you're from a two parent home, like everything's roses and daisies, you know what I mean? And not to compare trauma or anything like that. But these kids that have experienced tremendous hardship, yes. they're supposed to get everything together when they age out with with nothing. Right. No. With the, Often going by the way, you, your state, your state, my friend, you get a check for five hundred dollars when you so age out. For, for those that are listening, yeah, yeah, for, which, by the way, which has one of the worst foster care systems in our country, next to West Virginia. My state is not all that great of Maryland either. So let me tell you, nobody's doing it great, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, they, 26, 26, you know, so funny. My son, my son, my son, Alex, and by the way, my beautiful babies, my daughter, she's, she's 16. Um, she is amazing. All my children are amazing. I have two 14 year olds. My sweet baby boy is 12. Then my oldest son, Alex, who is 20, but Alex locked his keys in his car. I want to say last summer. He oh, was, I thought you were going to say like right now. I was like, oh, oh no, 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 no. He locked his keys in the car. I think it was last summer or something. Um, and, and, you know, immediately, it was actually, it was right before COVID. He had locked his keys in the car. He went to go visit a friend. He locked his keys in the car and he called his dad and I, and I locked my keys in the car. So of course I did the dad thing. He got the little lecture, yeah. you know, yeah. and then I called the locksmith. And I paid for a locksmith to meet my son, get his keys out of his car. He came home. My son walks in the house. He sits down on the couch and he looks at me and he says, Pops, he says, you know what? And I said, what's up, buddy? He said, if I didn't have you and Dada, he was like, how would I have gotten my keys out of my car? And then he looked at me and he says, I wouldn't even have had a car. I mean, this is the thing that we don't understand is that these kids, these amazing, amazing. And by the way, Stacey, there's no such thing as a bad kid. Yeah. It's only a kid that has to be redirected, you know, and, and we must understand that older kids deserve us and need us as much as those babies yeah. who need us, you know, and reason I've said this and we say this quite often. People say, are you going to have another kid? We have five now. And I say, we never say never. 
Um, and so it, there might be another Alex that that enters our life, you know, um, another Makai, another Grayson, another Tristan. I will tell you, there will probably never be another Amaya. I was going to say, you didn't say anything about your daughter. <laughs> well, because I have room in my heart for only one queen. Yeah. And that is my daughter, Amaya. And she is my princess. She's totally spoiled and just the center of, I, I know, she's so sweet. <laughs> She is the, she is the, she literally, the sun sets and rises in my daughter and all my kids, you know, yeah. but, but, you know, being a dad and having, having, you know, a daughter, you know, your husband, Danny knows, but we can do more, we can do better and yeah. we have to do better. My friend, we have to do better yeah. and we have to, and this is how we're doing better, Stacey, mm -hmm. by doing exactly what you're doing with your podcast, by doing exactly what you do when I see you in the clubhouse and you're doing what, what some people have not done before. And that is talk about it. Yeah. Talk about it. We have to, we have to, we have to have those uncomfortable conversations and this topic along with many others are sometimes controversial and people, um, uh, people want to debate what's the best way, but the, but the the idea that I want to kind of inspire people towards is that they have to do something, right? Um, it doesn't matter how seemingly small, but they need to they need to take a step in this direction to help serve these kids better. Um, and I and I love that we got to spend time today so that you could share your story. We didn't even get really into company. I know, I know. We're going to do this like, again. It's amazing. We're we're have to have, to have you back. We'll have yeah, to have I would you back. love to come back. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to say what you just said to, about do be, you know, this world is is runs around what we call doers. Okay. And I believe that each and every one of us are doers. The thing is, is that sometimes we don't know what to do. And so what I leave with your listeners and those who are watching this is that you all have the most richest, valuable thing in the world, each one of us. And that's our time, mm. our time. There's no price to that, yeah. your time. So give your time, find the local group home and shoot some basketball with one of these kids. Go and read a book with one of these kids. Go and go to dress shopping with one of these amazing women. Get to know them as a person, as a human. You know, look in their eyes and know that they are our future. Our children of today are our future for tomorrow. And that's what we have to start doing. You know, do, because we all have the ability to do. I can't think of a better way to end. Rob, thank you so much. We just appreciate the work. Um, that you and Reese are doing with comfort cases and Rob with just your advocacy all around this country. Um, it is so inspiring um, and you really and truly are a change maker. So thanks for sharing a little bit of your time with us today. Um, I love you very much and uh, can't wait to see you and give you a big hug now that we're both vaccinated. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Listen, happy National Foster Care Awareness Month. I think every month needs to we need to be aware of foster care. And I think that this is a step. So, Stacey, I wish you and your family the best. And thank you so much. And everybody have an amazing day. Thanks so much, Rob. Take care. We'll see you next week. Okay.